You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, and our focus is on mastering communication as an essential leadership skill so that you can command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal in any context. My guest this week is Glenn Hoffman. Glenn built and led the 100-person corporate data and AI team at New York Life for seven years. This included creating data science solutions for all major functions, such as sales, marketing, underwriting, customer service, and more. He also had a model governance and AI ethics team. I think we could use a little bit more of that in the world nowadays. That gets to be a bigger and bigger field. He left New York Life in late September and is now ready for the next chapter in analytics leadership in business. He's got his PhD in statistics and an MBA from Wharton as well. Glenn, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Now, what is a fun fact about you other than being an AI expert? I guess one that people enjoy is that I used to be a figure skater. In grad school, I did a lot of figure skating. I skated in a couple of ice shows. I guess I had time in grad school. Oh my goodness. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that before. That's amazing. So what was the most fun ice show that you ever skated in? It was nice. I was in a team, a little synchronous skating team. Sure. And we did a holiday show, which was a lot of fun. You know, kind of dressed up and lots of kids in the audience, you know, having fun with it. So it was awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun. How long did you do figure skating? A couple of years. Started early in my grad school career and then advanced through, through different levels. And the last two years, I think I did some performances. So this was not something you started until you were already in your 20s or so. It wasn't like you were doing a lot of skating as a kid or had an older sister who was in it or... I skated a couple of times on like a local pond as a kid, but that doesn't really count. I, you know, so I really learned how to skate in my early 20s and then did that for a few years. And who was it who talked you into figure skating of all things, as opposed to ice hockey or just for fun? Nobody did. It was like every quarter, I guess, in grad school, I looked at the big course catalog. And my goal was always to take about half of the classes in my major and take about half of the classes in something else. And I always looked for different physical education classes. And I took a bowling class and a tennis class. And one semester I came across skating. I'm like, okay, I'll take a skating class. And I take skating one and skating two and figure skating one and figure skating two. And eventually I graduated to being on a performance team. That would never have occurred to me, but that sounds like so much fun. I'm kind of jealous. I wish it had. Do you miss it? Yeah, sometimes. I still go to the ice rink occasionally and uh, practice a little bit. To show off some of your skills. Yeah, I mean, I'm rusty now, but yeah, I still (laughs) remember some things. My guess is that rusty for you is still about 87 times better than the average person who, like me, would just be stumbling all over themselves. So I still like watching. I think that sounds like a lot of fun. Now, with all that aside, tell me more about you and what's your 30-second elevator pitch? I'm excited about the next step of my career. I mean, what drives me is really... You know, I'm a data and analytics guy, and I've been doing that a long time. But what drives me is maybe two things in that, right? One is 
creating business impact from data and analytics, you know, whether that's in enhancing sales or detecting fraud or building better marketing campaigns. So something that materially impacts the business from analytical automated decisions that we can make from models and such. So that's a big one. And then the other thing is team leadership. So I've built and led significant teams and just seeing people strive and flourish on the team helping people advance in their careers, you know, whether they're very junior from like an internship or an associate level, or they're more senior at like a director level, helping them get to the next step and making progress in their careers. I think that's really rewarding. That's what we want in our leaders is people who want to create more leaders under them, raise up others below. Then what's something that you wish more people understood about your role or your industry? And how do you see your role in changing this perception? Who do you talk to to make that difference? Lately, AI has been a hot topic, not just in the analytics community, but in the general population as well. There's OpenAI taking their solution public about a year ago. So I'll give you an example. I, one of the things that happened, I get invited to a lot of internal meetings to talk about AI. So I was invited to a staff meeting of the communications team. And, you know, I had sort of a prep call of his, you know, my communications contact. And he said, well, you know, you got to be careful because there are some nervous people in the communications team. They think that they may be losing their jobs to AI or really changed their job a lot. And so I went there and I talked a bit and I did get questions in that direction. And I found myself sort of talking to the, what I think a misconception is that, you know, AI is like an intelligence. I think that the name is kind of a misnomer. I mean, they call it artificial intelligence, but it really isn't, right? It really, you know, when it comes down to it, it's just a model, highly parameterized model, but just a model that predicts the next word, the next sentence, the next paragraph that follows whatever prompt you put into that system. So it's really just predicting a piece of text that comes next. It's not really intelligent. It's just doing that, knowing all the data that it has ingested. Uh, so the way I spoke about it was like, well, think of it as a tool that you can use to do certain tasks in your job a little bit better, but it's definitely not a human being that or not an intelligence that's going to compete with you for a job. So I think that's important. And I think that myth gets publicized by some of the companies that built these models. And they talk about what's called artificial general intelligence which basically is a sort of the synonym for, you know, an AI that can act like a human in many, many things. And that's more of an aspiration than a reality, right? So they use that to motivate their employees and kind of motivate their field, you know, which is very specific, but it's an aspiration. Today, it's just a tool that helps people do certain pieces of their job a little better. When you're speaking with the communications team, and there are many people on the call at the time who were starting to feel concerned that their jobs are going to be replaced in the not too distant future, potentially by something that the company was creating at that point. So sharing that it was not so much intelligent as algorithms and predictive models, did that help? Did that allay fears? I, I believe so. I believe so. I, I think pointing out in AI can write fairly well, but it can't think, right? And it can't be critically analytic about things. So I think pointing out what it can do, what it cannot do helped. And also pointing out the tool nature of it. I guess the phrase that I like and that I used is AI is not going to replace you in your job. But somebody who is using an AI might, right? Uh, mm. Don't be that person that doesn't know how to use an AI. You know, that might be a problem. Interesting. And so these are not people who are tech people, but these are people in the comms team. So people in the communications department need to learn how to use AI. 
mean, you think about people on comms teams, right? They're writers, they're editors, they're content creators. That's what they do. And they're very good at that. And, and all that, they do media, they do media things, right? They do interviews and things like that. So they're very good at that. And certain pieces of their job, like, you know, writing a draft of something, of something new, you know, an AI can definitely help with that. But then, you know, putting the final piece together and polishing it, yeah, that's still a human task. Sure, the finesse and the nuances of it. And even knowing what questions to ask to be able to get the right data, the right content out. I'm learning more and more in the AI space about just the art is in framing the prompt. That's right. Yeah, it's called prompt engineering. And that's something that I think we all have to get a little better at. You know, I I mean, we're all going to use AI for, you know, various things, including writing. So we have to get a little better at formulating prompt, right? It's, It's sort of like, you know... 10 years ago, we had to learn how to use a cell phone, touchscreen cell phone. And if you don't know how to do that today, that would be pretty bad, I think, you know, for any job. So, you know, this is... Right. Or I think about it as when uh, search engines sort of first came out. Nowadays, you can just talk to Siri or you can go to Google and type in whole grammatical questions like, what is the population of this country and those kinds of things? And now it'll just spit out 12 billion answers to the same thing. But before you had to use key phrases and Boolean operators, and you had to know the syntax about how to get it to answer, to provide you the information you were looking for. We're still kind of at that stage with the AI. Is that a reasonable analogy? We are, yeah. I think it's a good analogy. I mean, that will change and evolve. I sure. mean, it's, it's, been, it's been changing so much. So that will change and evolve about how you get the best information. But, you know, just like other technologies have gotten better over time, it's just that we can't ignore them. Right? Ignoring them would be a problem. That might cost you know, people their jobs. But you know, growing with them and using them as appropriate is a good idea. Now, was there ever a time when you thought you did a great job of explaining something only to have the listener look at you like a deer in the headlights? Well, I don't know about a great job, but, but I, did <laughs> have a, I did have sort of a different experience recently. I was out in California for a couple of conferences, and as a favor to a friend, I offered to do a sort of a guest uh, session at Stanford, you know, and it was sort of a class on gender and technology. That was sort of the guest session speaker for, this is an undergrad class on gender technology, and I talked about models and model bias testing for like things like gender and race and mm-hmm. whatnot and insurance. That was all nice and good, but I think I didn't really know the audience very well at all, which was a bunch of undergrads, which is not my usual audience. And I probably, um, I mean, some people were active and kind of, you know, engaged, but most people probably weren't that engaged. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that went all that well. I think I misjudged how much of an entertainer I need to be for that kind Mm -hmm. of audience. So it's sort of, I know your audience and maybe talk beforehand to some people who know that audience better than you do to figure out what you should really focus on. And I think I was trying to be engaging and it would have worked for uh, an older audience, but I think for that audience, I wasn't entertaining enough. Isn't that funny how we have to, I've talked plenty of times about infotainment, which is distinct from content light, content light being fluff and not much actual value involved, but infotainment is, we can't just sit there and data dump information on people. It's, it doesn't hold people's attention. And nowadays we're so used to having entertainment at our fingertips perpetually on our cell phones, whatever we're most interested in, we can pull up right now. It's really hard to maintain people's attention. And I do think educators, I remember teachers both as a student back in a million years ago, but also when I was a public school teacher, a few 
fewer million years ago, but nevertheless, a good amount of time before. And so many teachers saying, you know, these kids just want to be entertained. I'm not here to entertain them. I'm not an entertainer. I'm a teacher. And I think that has really become very conflated nowadays. Part of teaching is figuring out how to not entertain, you know, being a clown and silly and telling jokes, but how to somehow make it more interesting and not just informative. And that that's a tough line for people to walk. Do you think that that's something that you've figured out how to do since then? I figured it out for certain audiences, but certainly not all audiences. I think it depends. The sort of information density you can put in there, you know, depends. And the entertainment value you have to put in there depends. But you can't communicate anything unless you keep people's attention. So yes. you do have to do enough of the entertaining and making it interesting to keep people's attention because that's the only way that they will listen to you. So I think it depends on the audience, but it's an important component. That one was in person, but on Zoom, it's even more important, I think. I mean, I've taught some classes to professionals on Zoom, and one has to organize things entirely differently than, <laughs> than in person. It is. And of course, in Zoom, it's not even like people are looking under their desks at their phone, and you can tell who's just not looking up and making eye contact. Zoom, people don't even have their cameras on. If they do, they can still multitask and just put your screen on in the back someplace, but they're checking email or working on a spreadsheet or something like that. It's really hard to tell if people are listening while you're talking. So. It's a challenge I think many people can relate to, to say the least. Now, I think this is a good time for you to perhaps challenge our audience because you just shared a challenge that you experienced. This is time for our listener 24-hour influence challenge. So Glenn, how would you like to challenge our listeners today to have them take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence? I mean, obviously there's lots of things we could do, but let's do one thing very specific. This is sort of obvious, but, you know, we're on a podcast right now. I'm speaking on a podcast. There's nothing special about me here. So you can do the same. So I'm sure you're listening to some podcasts. I mean, you listen to this one. You're listening to other podcasts that you like. So pick a podcast in your area that's, I mean, roughly where those people, you know, at your level or maybe slightly above your level that are speaking at these things. Just think of something that you would talk about in this podcast, write to the host or to the organizers and make your pitch and see if you can go on there and speak and be more influential to the people in your field. All right. So everybody out there, did you get that? I love that you're listening. We want you to keep listening to podcasts. Consider being on it. So reaching out, finding. So the first stage, 24-hour window, Glenn, is it identifying a podcast you'd speak on as is it actively reaching out and I would say it's three things it's okay. it's identifying a podcast or two it's finding a topic that you want to talk about on that podcast and three sending a message to the host or the organizing company of it so, I think that's doable in 24 hours. It is. And I'm sure there are many people who go, whoa, that's huge. And it's actually not. Having done this for as long as I've done it, I'm going to help you cheat. So this is your 24-hour influence challenge, but I'm going to help people out there find a real easy, and I'm not getting any kickbacks for this one way or another in case anybody wonders, but there are some really good resources out there. For example, there's a website called podcastguests.com. And you can just go to the website and it's like a yellow pages or match site where you, as soon as you get there, it'll say, are you a host or are you a guest? And if you want to be a guest, you just go to that side. And then and there's two options, of course. One, you go in and you fill out your own profile and they give you a couple of fields to fill. And it's not even as complicated as filling out a LinkedIn profile. So, you know, put a little thought into it, but it kind of asks you what kind of stuff you want to talk about. And 
you can also look at the hosts section or at least see what shows I should say are listed in the directory. It's a directory. That's what we're talking about here. And just see what kinds of under the business or under the healthcare or under the gender and personal relationships and whatever else kind of topics. But find something that looks interesting and see what they look for in their speakers. And when you see what they look for in their speakers, you can go, you know what, that fits me or I fit that description. I'll click the link and say apply. And they make it super easy, super fast. And I think that'll help you to execute on Glenn's suggestion. So, and of course, you'll see speaking to influence there. So feel free to say hi. So how's that, Glenn? Can I help? Can I give people a cheat sheet to your test? I learned something new. I didn't know about that website. So that's uh, that's interesting. I might have to check that out myself. There are quite a number. So even if you just go to Google and type in podcast directories, speaker directories, show directories, apply to be a speaker, those kinds of things, you'll find plenty. But once you're there, it becomes very easy to see new ones all the time that are being promoted and just to do a quick scan and say, is there anything here, any shows that I would want to be a guest on? Lots of fun. So, all right, there's, I'm telling you some of my inside secrets. Now your turn for a few more inside secrets, Glenn, what is a time when you felt super nervous before a presentation or speaking engagement and what communications related lessons did you learn from it? I'm usually not that nervous as a public speaker, but there was an event couple months ago that I put on at the company it was a half-day event on generative AI that I put together because I saw there was a lot of demand for that type of information. So yeah, it was like a four or five hour event and I had multiple roles on it. I did give sort of the first talk kind of explaining the topic in a bit more detail to a lay audience because anybody at the company you know, could attend. And then I was also the moderator for two panels, you know, where I had brought in some external speakers. So in my first session, which I think was about maybe 45 minutes, in the beginning, I was very nervous. And it sort of took me by surprise. But I think it was because the audience was very large. This was the biggest conference room in the building was packed, about 300 people. And then there were another 500 people online on the Zoom link. Mm -hmm. So I knew that. And, you know, that seemed like a lot. So I think the first five to 10 minutes, I was pretty nervous. I was stumbling along a bit. And then after that, I got comfortable and I was fine. And, and, you know, I got a lot of compliments for the whole thing afterwards. But I mean, that sort of alerted me that I should probably practice the first few minutes of my talk, you know, much more than the rest of it. Because the first five minutes is A, when I need to get used to being in front of this audience. And it's also when the audience needs to get used to me and see if they made a good choice of actually attending this. Because people took time out of their busy day to come to this event, which is not required or, you know, they just did have their interest. And, uh, you know, in the first five minutes, I kind of have to, you know, back to this entertaining conversation we had earlier, I have to at least validate their decision, right? They made a decision to come do what's potentially four hours of their life. And uh, I have to make them feel good about that, hopefully in the first five minutes, and have to make them excited about what's to come in the next couple hours. So, you know, that's a lot to do and then probably requires some additional practice, especially of the first five to 10 minutes. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that's, I actually have a label for that. Then it's what I refer to as the 60 to 60 rule. And I've, uh, if anybody has a copy of my book, Speaking to Influence out there, uh, there's a little section, you can find it in the table of contents on the 60 to 60 rule. But the idea of behind that, and you're so right, your instincts are spot on, is that in the first 60 seconds, the audience is going to 
you're going to set their expectations for the value that you're going to give them, the, what to expect from you in the next 60 minutes. So if you don't have time to practice the whole thing, to your point, so many people do get nervous in the beginning and then eventually they get into their groove and then they're okay. So if you know it takes a little while before that groove kicks in, so to speak, practice that part so that you have a chance to get on, you know what you want to say, it's not stumbly, bumbly, fumbly in the beginning, and you're totally confident that you know exactly what words need to come out of your mouth. And then by the time you need to do a little bit more ad-libbing, you're more comfortable and you're confident. So uh, you're, you're completely solid advice on that front. So hopefully everybody's going to take note on that one and practice that first couple of minutes, if nothing else. Preparation certainly is key. Now, what about a time when you needed to inspire others? What happened there? I do that a lot, but I'll pick a recent situation I was in. So as Laura said earlier, I'm looking for a job right now. I left my previous employer looking for a new opportunity, which involves interviewing. And it involves me being a little more humble than I probably needed to be before. So I was interviewing at a company in person two weeks ago, and it was many interviews. And one of the interviews was with somebody who would be my employee if I was taking that all. So he sort of got to interview candidates to be his future boss. And he asked me about how I would help people in their careers, the people on my team. So I had to inspire him, basically, yeah. uh, to sort of believe in me as his next leader, right? Which is definitely an inspiration challenge. So I did a few things. I talked about career pathing and the kinds of technical and non-technical career tracks that I've created and past teams that I led. I talked about education, you know, sort of fostering additional degrees as well as non-technical, you know, communications training, soft skills training, and so on. And then I talked about the tracks to get to management and the different steps that I provide to for people to find out whether they want to be managing other people or not and the opportunities for that. And then I finished it off with basically pointing to specific employees on my past teams that have followed me from job to job several times and they've done, you know, quite well in their careers as sort of saying, well, okay, you know, whatever I just told you, that's not just theory, but it actually happened. And here are some people that have benefited from that and they're really doing well. So that was my attempt to inspire, but, you know, might have been a future employee of mine. And may still be, never know. And now, did you feel like he responded in a way that showed some inspiration? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Did he say anything that uh, showed interest in a particular part? Or could you tell by his facial expressions that anything was registering? Were you able to read the audience? Yeah, I could tell by facial expression. I could also tell by follow-up questions. Mm. You know, you had some follow-up questions on the uh, management track, you know, things. You had some follow-up questions on the training. So I guess it was interested. Sure. And I think that's important, right, is when we're trying to read an audience and trying to gauge are we having an impact? Is what we're saying landing? Do they think we're insane? Do they have no idea what we're talking about? Are we boring them? Is there something else? So it was great that you were getting the follow-up questions. I think that says a lot about what direction they want to take the conversation after you're done with those kinds of things. So super signpost there for whether the wind is blowing in the right direction. If they're like, yeah, tell me more about this or God, let's change the topic. Please don't tell me any more about that. That's always a good little hint to take. We all have someone from whom we'd like to ask for something like advice, support, or an opportunity, but we haven't worked up the courage to make the ask. What's the time you really wanted to make that ask, but were afraid to do so? And how did you finally decide to pull the trigger? So being in the position of looking for a new job, I have to ask a lot of people for a lot of things right now. 
which you know can be a little bit uncomfortable, but you kind of have to get over that. So one specific instance of that recently, like two weeks ago, was a friend of mine had sort of pointed out that there was this person we both know who you know might have an opportunity that could be of interest to me. And that person was a former boss of mine. So in a past job, I had a boss and I actually left that job and I left to go to a different company. So I basically left him. It was in good faith and all, but I was kind of hesitating to... I mean, I have his number and we work together, but I, I was hesitating to call him because I've left him in a past job and I'm basically asking for a potential new opportunity with him. So I wasn't sure how he would take that. So I hesitated for a few days and then I said, okay, well, I got to do it. So I texted him and we ended up having a you know very nice phone call and now I'm on his radar and that's all really good. But yeah, that took a little convincing of myself to make that call. And nobody ever likes to ask for the favor. No one ever likes to ask for the introduction or the information. But I think what you said that was most simple and impactful was the idea of just get on the radar. He knows you exist. You're on the person's radar. If they don't know that you're interested, if they don't know that you're looking for something, they can't help you. And maybe you're exactly what they're looking for. You just never know. But we have to let them know. For those of you out there that are in a similar position, maybe all job searching or, or, you know, whether you're currently employed or not, it's a lot of networking. So you have to ask a lot of people just for a meeting, right? It's not, you know, you're not asking for a job. You're just asking for a meeting to catch up, to introduce yourself and keep it at that level. And uh, things come from that. I mean, some people will be helpful and some people won't, but enough people will be helpful to introduce you to the next person, to make a connection, to tell you about an open job, to tell you about another company that might be interesting. And it just kind of cascades from there. And, and before you know, you have a ton of networking calls every day. Time to talk to people. Flex that muscle. Talk to people. Lastly, what's something that you do to create a little bit more fun for your team? So I've done a whole bunch of team events. Pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, it's always good to get the whole team together to learn and to socialize, but also have some fun together. I, I think the most fun event that I liked is kind of a cooking event. So you go to like one of these professional kitchens, they have a few coaches or chefs if you want for you. They break up the team and there are a few different sub teams that actually prepare different courses in the meal, right? So there'll be a little group that does the soup and a little group that does the salad and a little group that does an, an entree or two and you know, a group that does a dessert and everybody can participate. It's not terribly demanding. Everybody can chop some vegetables and, you know, stir some soup and whatnot. And people can kind of have fun and banter about, you know, somebody not being able to, you know, how much they cook at home or not and how clumsy they might be or not. And, you know, that's all okay. And after all that, you know, you sit down at a big table and you eat the stuff that you just made. What could be better than that, right? Uh, so... <laughs> So I always thought those, uh, I've done that a couple of times. I, I thought that was a lot of fun. I love cooking classes. I think they're a lot of fun. I try to take one every now and then just experiencing new things together, new flavors, new conversations. And it's, look, you get to eat at the end. What's not to like at that point? And usually there's enough stuff that, okay, if there's one thing that you make and you go, yeah, I don't think I need a second helping of that. Fine, go get something else. But breaking bread is always a great way to connect with other people. So thank you for that suggestion. Glenn, how can people learn more about you? Just go to my LinkedIn page. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So Glenn Hoffman, New York Live Chief Analytics Officer, whatever, you can find me easily. And connect with me on LinkedIn. I do post about twice a week on LinkedIn on topics of analytics and governance and AI and related topics. So uh, follow that. And if you have any other questions, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Love it. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.
And thank you, everybody else, for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And of course, don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.